Let's start here in Pierce County, the criminal trial of the county sheriff down there, Sheriff Ed Troyer, continuing this morning. He faces two misdemeanor charges. Cairo News Radio's Darren Dito tells us how opening statements have gone. Prosecutors say Sheriff Troyer called 911 in January 2021, saying there was a suspicious black man in his neighborhood. Sheriff Troyer thought the driver was kind of a thief and might have a garage door opener. So he got in his Chevy Tahoe and began following the car. Sheriff Troyer said he tried to be polite to him, quote, but he just says I'm a racist and he wants to kill me. Prosecutors say it was newspaper carrier Cedric Alzheimer on his route. The defense says he threatened to harm the sheriff. That he knew he was a police officer and an indication he knew this was the sheriff. When he went over to Sheriff Troyer's window of his car and started yelling at him, and he said this, I'll take you out. The prosecution says no weapon was found and the sheriff's story has changed. In effect, Sheriff Troyer backpedaled from his statements to the 911 dispatcher about Mr. Alzheimer threatening to kill him. The statements that prompted more than 40 officers to rush towards his aid to, to him and caused Mr. Alzheimer to be questioned as a possible suspect. The defense says the prosecution has the facts wrong. Two criminal counts brought by these prosecutors is based upon this quote unquote lie that he said initially I was threatened and then he said later he didn't. Well, you know what? He didn't say that. Troyer is charged with misdemeanor counts of false reporting and making a false or misleading statement to a public servant. Darren Dito Cairo, News Radio. Hey, oh, let's go. Hey, oh. It is time for choke points brought to you by Atkins Quality Roofing. Look, we all know that teenagers are easily distracted and especially when they get behind the wheel of a car. But what about teens that have other difficulties, difficulties focusing in the first place, for example? An ADHD study on driving has just been completed. And Chris is here with some details on that. Yeah, I can't think of anybody more distracted than a teen with ADHD. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that I hadn't even really considered, you know, thinking about that, because fortunately, no one in our family has been, you know, diagnosed with that or seems to have deaf, you know, attention issues. But uh, I'm glad they're looking at this because the National Institute of Health reports that teen drivers are about four times as likely to be in a car crash than adult drivers and that teens who suffer from ADHD are twice as likely as their teen peers to be in a crash. So you put those numbers together. That's that's a pretty significant uh, situation. And focusing while driving, of course, is a huge component to being safe. And long stares away from the road can be very dangerous. It's those very long stairs that really impact those with ADHD. Adolescents with ADHD are some of the highest risk drivers we have on the roadways today. This is the first intervention that really does reduce driving risk. That is Dr. Jeffrey Epstein at Cincinnati Children's Medical Center who conducted this small study on 152 teens just learning to drive. Half of them underwent a special type of driving course, a driving simulation program that taught these drivers to make repeated quick glances away instead of longer glances. The goal was to limit the time that the eyes were focused elsewhere. Using a split computer screen, alarms sounded when actions weren't taken fast enough. So if you were looking at the bottom of the screen too long or the top of the screen too long before you had to do something, alarms went off. Three seconds to start and then as they got better, two seconds to try to maybe jog them back into looking where they should have. Those young drivers then were put into a driving simulator wearing special glasses that tracked their eye and head movements. If they looked away from the road for more than two seconds, the alarm sounded. Researchers then followed them into their cars after they got their licenses. We put cameras in all of these kids' cars for a full year after the intervention to see what their eye glance behavior was like. And we saw a very significant decrease in the number of long eye glances away from the roadway in those children with ADHD. 
So during that year of driving that followed, the teens that underwent this training had 76% fewer long glances than their peers and a crash rate that was 40% less than the control group. Again, positive news, but again, a very small study. This is an intervention that we hope teens will use to make themselves better drivers. And I'm all for that. This program is called Focus Concentration and and Attention Learning, or Focal Plus for short. So you can check that out at the National Institute of Health. It's it's an interesting idea and one I hadn't thought of. Yeah, it certainly isn't a a danger that I had on my radar, so to speak, uh, when it comes to being behind the wheel. And I don't have teens yet, but it's certainly something to keep in mind of as they get to that age. I think it's something, too, that even adults who may be distracted by their phones, unable to stop holding them, looking at them, because I still see drivers. Oh, yeah. Through town. You know, you can (laughs) see. I mean, they look like drunk drivers on the freeway because they're weaving. But in town, they're going slow enough that you can see their eyes down at their phone. So I'm wondering, too, if not just teens with ADHD, but just adults in general with this new generation of technology relearning how to not drive distracted. In that, and I've even found it. And uh, Travis, as you know, being, you know, having worked, you know, through in Montana, you can there are long stretches of road where you're going. And I look, I'm, you know, I'm looking, hey, check out that cows and hey and then you know and then little you know a deer jumps in front you know it's like yeah i get it so but i hadn't really thought about that at jumping on that on the front end during a teen learning uh as a way to try to uh, limit their their glances away and the long glances so that's a it's an interesting idea and i i I like i like that somebody's looking at it yeah me too chris thank you very much it is 716 here on Cairo News Radio. This is Seattle's Morning News. The State Patrol has made significant progress on the backlog of sexual assault evidence in our state. But as Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott reports, the backlog continues to grow. And the pandemic slowed things down. For years, nobody knew about the thousands of untested rape kits sitting on the shelves of local law enforcement agencies that had never been sent for testing. Eventually, state Democratic Representative Tina Orwall and Republican Representative Gina Mossbrucker teamed up with survivors and the state attorney general to change all of that, leading to a full inventory being conducted and several new requirements for testing both old kits and new kits faster. In 2018, the Attorney General's office found there were thousands of untested kits from the past several decades, the oldest from 1982. As part of new testing requirements, the State Auditor's office provided an update to lawmakers yesterday on the progress of testing all of those kits. We found that Wall State Patrol has taken important steps to eliminate the backlog. Thousands of kids remained untested as of January of this year. That's Carly Schmidt with the auditor's office. Her colleague, Holland Kitchell, elaborating. While the first efforts to identify untested kits in the state began in 2015, an official inventory in 2018 determined that more than 9,000 kits had not been submitted for testing. In addition to the kits identified as part of this inventory, State Patrol has continued to receive about 2,000 new sexual assault kits each year for testing. The growing number of both older and new kits has resulted in two backlogs at the agency. She also took a deeper dive into the significant changes State Patrol has made in recent years to test these kids faster. In looking at State Patrol's progress in eliminating the backlog, we found that it increased its testing capacity and adopted process improvements consistent with best practices. The audit identified three key changes implemented in recent years. First, State Patrol acquired new equipment designed to increase the number of samples tested at a time. However, this equipment was not fully operational during the audit period. Second, the crime labs statewide adopted new testing methods known as direct-to-DNA to make the process more efficient. 
but it took several years to implement after becoming aware of it as a best practice. Third, State Patrol expanded its testing capacity by increasing the number of private labs it contracts with from one lab to three in anticipation of receiving more kits. In addition, the COVID-19 pandemic affected the patrol's ability to implement some improvements more quickly. For example, engineers who were to program the new testing equipment were diverted to efforts focused on COVID-19 testing. As of this audit, it's too early to tell whether these changes will have a significant impact on reducing the backlogs going forward. This is particularly the case for new testing equipment needed to increase capacity since the equipment was not fully operational during this audit. State Patrol has been trying to clear the backlog of older kits while it continues to receive thousands of new kits. Of the 24,000 total kits and related evidence State Patrol has received since 2015, testing had not been completed for more than 6,000 kits, about 26% as of January 1st of this year. State Patrol DNA Operations Manager Christina Hoffman had an update to the audit's numbers. Since the auditor's performance audit in January, we have continued to make further progress on eliminating the sexual assault kit backlog and ensuring new kits received starting May 1st are tested within 45 days. From January to the end of October, the overall backlog of kits needing testing was reduced an additional 31% and just over 4,400 kits still await testing. Out of the approximately 25,000 kits received since 2015, Approximately 83% have been tested and the law enforcement agencies have received those DNA results for further evaluation and action. But Hoffman says most importantly, because of all of these changes in recent years. The result of this statewide project, a survivor now has the ability to anonymously monitor the progress of their kit as it works its way through the system at any given time. Most importantly, a survivor's kit will be tested in a timely manner, with the majority of kits now being tested in 45 days or less. And Hannah is joining us live now. So there's a lot of information in the report you just presented, but where my heart immediately goes to the folks who are waiting for this evidence, what should they take away from all of this? Well, the, most importantly, uh, they can go now because of uh, some of those new requirements. You kind of heard them reference it a little bit there. We do have a state tracking system of the kits that those survivors can go and track anonymously. And the way this works, it's done through the Attorney General's Office. You can find it on their website, uh, the State Attorney General's Office. You can track that kit, you can track that anonymously, and you can track it whether you've decided to go to, you know, have the police investigate, not investigate, regardless of what the outcome was there. If you had a kit done at the hospital, you can track what happens with that, where it is, in case you want to do something with it later, whatever it might be, uh, to make sure that there's at least somebody some attention being paid to it and again uh, the very important thing that she said there is that all kids are that are tested and that the person does want to go ahead and submit to the law enforcement agencies those are being turned around within 45 days which is a huge difference to the years and in some case decades that it was taking to get these things submitted and, and tested before hannah scott reporting live for us hannah thank you very much How about a daily dose of kindness to kick things off? Always choosing that. (laughs) It's brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Dwayne Johnson, you know the name. He's also known as The Rock. He used to steal Snickers from a 7-Eleven in Hawaii. And he just returned to right the wrong. In a video posted on his Instagram, he talked about his journey. I have been waiting decades to do what I'm getting ready to do now. 
Where's your Snickers? When I was 14 years old, every day I used to stop here at the 7-Eleven and steal a king-size Snicker bar because I couldn't afford to buy one. That was my pre-workout food. I did that for almost a year every day. I had to come back and buy every Snickers bar on those shelves. He bought every Snickers bar on those shelves and even helped out a few customers already inside that 7-Eleven. You want anything? You got anything? That's just for you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I'm going to leave these here. If somebody looks like they're stealing Snickers, give them these so they don't steal it. Thank you. After decades, I am behind. Come on over here. Let's take a picture. I got to go. The rock is here. After decades of me wanting to come back home to 7-Eleven and try and make good, that felt really, really good. I'm out. Snickers and 7-Eleven. I'm guessing the owners aren't going to press charges since he wrote it that <laughs> I don't know. The statute of limitations probably up on, on Snicker shoplifting. shoplifting. <laughs> I love this, though, that it's never too late to right a wrong or yes. say you're sorry. It could have been 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years ago. It's still OK to say I'm sorry. Yeah, make amends. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of, you know, the AA program, too, is going back even decades right. to say, hey, I'm sorry. I was a mess at this time. And so Johnson has been uh, open about his family's struggles to make ends meet during his teen years. You may have heard him say in there that he couldn't afford it, so he had to take it. In 2017, the actor spoke about watching his parents depend on the kindness of others to help stretch their paychecks and put food on the table. I love it. Yeah. Thanks, Colleen. Mm-hmm. Let it play. Oh. Never misses. Whew. All right. I, I, we got to talk, I guess. <laughs> G and Ursula show is weekdays 9 to noon on Cairo News Radio. And the one, the only, the incredible Ursula Royteen is here with us. This is such a big deal and such a, oh, and I such know. a surprise, too. Christine McVie passing away at the age of 79. One of Fleetwood Mac's singer-songwriters. I mean, she she did everything. Absolutely everything was she the glue really that held this crazy storm together <laughs> for the decades that they were together and not. So true. And I'm looking at you, Colleen, right now, and mm-hmm. I see that you look like you got a teeny bit emotional because yeah. just hearing that song mm-hmm. got me feeling yeah. really emotional and, and hearing of her passing because to me, she wasn't 79. To me, she was the same age uh, she w- was when I listened to that Rumors album yeah. over and <laughs> over yeah. and over and over again. And that is the single most definitive album in my lifetime and and it's for the reason why it went when i listened to it so uh i moved to the united states from manila from the philippines in 1978 i was 13 years old it was a very tumultuous time for my family we moved to this country basically to you know try to keep our family together so there was just tumult and 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 angst and and everything that goes along with a stressful family life and then being a 13 year old and this album was like my warm blanket it was like my what i could count on every day to just make me feel something and christine mcvee's um particular song one that i just really gravitated 
toward is the one and only song that I can actually play on the piano and sing at the same oh. time. Mm. And it's a song that really wasn't the one of the biggest hits, but um, it's Songbird. If you don't know uh, which song it is, here's a little bit of it. I may break down a little bit right now. But 13 year old Ursula listening (laughs) to this and hearing those words (laughs) and them comforting you, Ursula. Thank Uh, you for sharing. Well, I mean, it just, you know, but every one of us has that song or that album. And for me, it was this one. And and what I loved was hearing about uh, Christine McVie. She wrote that song in just a half hour. Mm. Oh, my God. So she woke up uh, in the middle of the night. She, she, She explained that it was around midnight. Uh, and it came to her, the words, the, the melody, everything. And she didn't have anyone around there to record. I mean, it's midnight. So she stayed up all night so she wouldn't forget it. Oh, oh my God. How incredible. And then, I know, it is really incredible. And then uh, the producer um, loved it and then suggested that she record it um, like a concert style. So you, when you hear it, it's just her and the piano. And it's so beautiful. But... That whole album. Yes. And, and Christy McVie, um, you know, if more people knew Stevie Nicks. Of course. You know, and I loved Stevie Nicks sure, too. Uh, yeah. Um, but she really, um, just had such thoughtful, she was one of those, um, very rare talents that, that didn't maybe get all the credit that she should. Yeah. Um, but so it was very sad to hear her passing, but, it, but, and then I think when you hear, you know, she was 79, I mean, that is, not that old, um, and but I think it it hits us because of the impact that yeah, the music I, has. Had. I completely understand having just lost Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters, yes. and you know that band has nothing on Fleetwood Mac, obviously. But well, when you gravitate towards a musical artist and they uh, sing to you and they make you feel things and they comfort you, that was my comfort music from college age up yeah. is Foo Fighters, and so I yes. understand your emotion. I, I had been mourning for months and months about that loss, so I get I it. Know. These are our family members, these musicians. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, Um, May she rest in peace um, and her music will live on forever. Ursula, thank you for sharing that. I, th- I think of uh, songs that mean something to me, and I kind of think of them as the etches in a record, and yes. I think of the record etched in my heart, mm. and I just saw you play your record for us, and I thought it was really beautiful. It was a really oh, thank you. special and beautiful thing. Thanks for coming in and doing of that. Of course. Ursula, of course, is the G and Ursula Show, 9 to noon here on Cairo News Radio. Seattle's morning news. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien. Travis Mayfield is here filling in for Dave Ross. We have Sully and Mickey Gomez is joining us to tell us about this new space opening in San Francisco that mm, some may find controversial. Yeah, they might. It's been around for a couple of years. It's called Chief. It's basically a place, a safe space for women executives to empower other women in high positions. And they say that their main goal is to pave the way for more women to join prestige roles, to know that there's space at the table in these Fortune 100 companies and that they should be looking for those positions. And I find it very interesting that it's just now becoming, it's exploding, it's becoming popular. Yeah, I think I saw it was in New York, Chicago. They just opened the San Francisco Francisco, branch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the listeners know anything women. I'm like, rah, rah, let's go. I just had a thought where 
you know, because I've known people who have belonged to men's club, you know, back in the day. Yeah. And, and a lot of the, the movement, the feminist movement has been about tearing down those walls and those blockages with these men's club. And I think, well, aren't we doing the same thing by opening a female only club? Well, I think you're right. And if I'm allowed to share my opinion on this, 100%, yes. 100%. I, I support this club. I really do. It's like yeah. sisters, you know, in hand in hand and, and, you know, lift and carry. And I'm all about that. There are some things that I do take issue with. Currently, they have 15,000 vice presidents and senior and C-suite executive members, a wait list of 60,000. Oh, my goodness. Here's where I have issue. Their membership starts around $5,000 for the VP level and then executives, 7,900. So they're doing a great thing. But what about the young businesswoman? Who mm-hmm. would like to be a part of this? Who can't necessarily afford it? Well, their answer to that, because I went looking to find out, you know, could a young entrepreneurial spirited woman join this organization? Yes. 70% of the members are actually sponsored by ah, their company. That's okay. Good. That's good. Yeah. I actually did read, and maybe this will allay some of your concerns, Colleen, that they do let men join. That it's mm-hmm. not like they can come it, in, yeah, but they can't be members, right? But I think that they can still actively participate. So what it might kind of made me think of in my own personal experience is like a gay bar or like a gay club. <laughs> like, it was like a safe space that we really needed, and straight people didn't go there. Yeah, and then now it became a place where like everybody's welcome, and like it's a safe space for everybody. Like kind of the same idea, and what you were saying about feminism, like wanting to break down those those men only spaces were largely. Only men, white, rich, privileged, and those are spaces that do need to be broken down. And there were rules about like when women or your family could come in, whereas this one's more included, which doesn't surprise me that when when women create a club or when women create a space, it Mm -hmm. is going to be inclusive. Any word? Any coming to Seattle? I'm wondering. I I would bet. I would bet that we would be next. Yeah, I'll join. Especially with the tight. We'll ask Bonneville to pay for our membership. (laughs) You know what's not exclusive? (laughs) What? Being in the club of... Of preparedness, which is what we need to talk about next, because mm-hmm. this winter weather has taken a lot of people for a turn. We saw with the first snow midweek that a lot of drivers had to ditch their cars. They were not ready. So, Mickey, you have some advice as our midday traffic reporter on the best things to keep in your car during a winter storm. I do. I got to speak with Christina Werner with um, Washdot Pierce County. She said, these are the items that you need to have. First off, you need to have your chains in your vehicle. You need mm-hmm. to make sure like, if you're thinking Hey, I'm going to go across Snoqualmie Pass. You need chains. Number two, you need a first aid kit, ice scraper, brush. You're going to need boots, mm-hmm. gloves, warm clothes, blankets, mm-hmm. jumper cables, water, flashlight, cell phone charger, and some cleaning supplies. Those are the 12 items that you need in your vehicle this winter in order to survive our inclement weather in the event that you get stuck. What's the cleaning supplies yeah, I was going to ask the same thing. Like, yeah. What am I cleaning? Yeah. In case you, you get bored and want to like yeah. dust your car, I don't. Well, in case you have to, what if you want run out of windshield wiper fluid? Oh, I see. Okay. Cleaning you yeah. gotta, you yeah. know, yeah. Okay. Um, or maybe uh, a cleaning supply that will melt the snow. Yeah. She also offers some winter driving tips for inclement weather. And by the way, all of these tips are online at mynorthwest.com. She said, uh, practice putting on your chains in your driveway before a storm hits. 
because on the side of Snoqualmie Pass at 10 o'clock at night is not the best time to practice yeah. putting on chains if it becomes required. You can also marry somebody who knows how to do it. Like exactly that. what I was going to say. <laughs> Neither my same, wife and we? I know how to put chains on the car. We had no idea Uh-oh. when we Uh-oh. moved here. Practice. I always thought that that was a myth, putting chains on cars. I thought that was something that truckers <laughs> yeah. did no. or what. And then we move here and I'm like, wait a minute. You, <laughs> you, get really work? you put yeah. chains on your cars? That's yeah. right. A Texan in the I know, snow. How right. are you doing? Oh, you know, we lived in New York City. We got used oh, to the snow. Okay. I have a four wheel drive Jeep. I also have snow wheel drive. So we're good to go. But chains? Yeah. No, that just. Oh, it's a real thing. It is a real thing. So. <laughs> it happens. All right. Yeah. Thanks for the advice, Mickey. You're very welcome. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.